You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them, rule them with a rod of iron. And, when earthen, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Crams. Well, church family, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 there. And uh, we are continuing in our series, Letters to the Church, and we're looking at these seven churches that Jesus wrote to in the first century that are located there in Asia Minor. And uh, we are looking at the general idea of what it looks like as a church to be faithful in a day of compromise. And with each of these churches, we're zeroing in on a certain area of faithfulness that Jesus is looking for in his church. We've seen already faithfulness in the area of love at the church of Ephesus. We looked at faithfulness in the area of suffering, the church of Smyrna. Last week, we looked at faithfulness in the area of worship there in Pergamum. And this week, we're going to look at faithfulness in the area of work. As we move our way here on this postal route uh, to the church at Thyatira. So we have gone from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, moving north up the western coast off the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey. Uh, And then now we're turning a little southeast and heading more inland in the western central part of Turkey to the church of Thyatira. Now, this church, where it's located, uh, this is the only of the seven churches that is built on a plain. In other words, it doesn't have an acropolis. It doesn't have a high city where the church is at, like some of these other places we've seen. This one is actually built uh, down in the valley floor uh, on a plain. And its reason for that is because this is one of the major trade routes. Again, it's on a postal route, but this particular area is what intersects what's known as the Royal Road that's going to go from Susa and Babylon, which is modern-day Iran, Iraq. It's going to go all the way up that was built, comes through Sardis, and then will be through Thyatira and on into Europe. And it was where all the trades and the goods that were coming across commercially would come through. And in the first century, this was a small community, about 25,000 people, but it was dominated by commerce. Um, it, it, it had a um, 
there in Thyatira in the soil, in the water that was in that soil produced a rich mineral that formed this really rich red clay unlike any other place in the world. And that's what made this an epicenter of textile commerce in particularly. And you would have a number of these various businesses in Thyatira that would be common in every Roman city, but here they're concentrated and they would be formed into what are known as guilds in the Roman Empire, much like you think of an actor's guild or a worker's guild. Um, Archaeologists have discovered that more trade guilds existed in Thyatira per capita than any other Roman city in Asia Minor. Back then, you didn't have Social Security, you didn't have Medicare, you didn't have 401ks, you didn't have welfare, disability, you didn't have any of these programs to fall back on and take care of you. So what you had to do was form unions. You had to form uh, and these bonded unions together called guilds where you could work together and ensure the livelihood of each one. Now, guilds were kind of a combination of family meets trade union meets fraternity sorority meets social welfare. And so you had all kinds of guilds. And what we found in all the inscriptions uh, there in Thyatira, there was wool guilds, there were linen guilds, there were leather guilds, tanner guilds, potter guilds, baker guilds, there's bronze smiths guilds, uh, all kinds of guilds. But certainly the most prominent guild that they have discovered in Thyatira was the dyer's guild, as in uh, colored dyes. And that's because of the rich resources in the ground that you could use to dye various textiles. Think about many of the Persian rugs that would come through uh, on the Royal Road here. They they were using these dyes to manufacture them in many of the textile centers. And many of you may be familiar, one of the most famous dyes that you would use, but it was the most limited, was the purple dye. Purple dye was reserved for royalty in the ancient world. And uh, so much so, the reason being is because it was one of the hardest dyes to get. There are only really two places you can get it, out of seashells that are located uh, off the Mediterranean coast or from a matter plant root. And that is what Thyatira had in abundance, was its matter plant. And it would have this purple root that could be turned into this dye. And, uh, And in fact, there's an inscription found in Thyatira that mentioned this man by Menippus of Thyatira, who was an individual that was honored, apparently, for his incredible skill at purple dyes. Now, a little New Testament trivia for you. Can you think of another New Testament character who is known, as a woman, who is known for being a seller of purple fabrics, who is from Thyatira? Lydia. Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia is found in the city of Philippi. Paul meets her on one of his journeys after he receives the Macedonian call. He heads to Philippi and he runs in. Now, in in any Roman city, in order to form a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 men. Well, Philippi didn't have even 10 Jewish men, so they had what's called a prosuke, which was a bunch of women who would gather down by a riverside and they would pray. And this is where Paul finds Lydia. And Luke tells us that Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira. That was important enough for Luke to note where she was from. So there is no question Lydia at one point was a part of the Dyer's Guild in Thyatira. Now, one important thing to know about these guilds 
is that every guild in the Roman Empire had a patron deity that they would worship in this guild. Uh, and they would worship this guild because they, this patron deity, because they felt like this deity reigned over the particular area that their commerce was producing. And they would worship this deity in order to invoke its blessing upon their business. And so what we found is that the chief patron deity of most of the guilds in Thyatira was the god Apollo. And Apollo's nickname was the son of God. And the reason Apollo is the son of God is because he's the son of Zeus. And so they would worship Apollo in Thyatira as the son of God. And as an act of worship, each guild would host what are known as guild feasts. And they would do these at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. This was a way of one social interaction, but it was also a way of formally worshiping the God so that their business could receive blessing and be prosperous. And so what would happen, one of the primary ways that you worship them, is it go like this. If you're the Dyer's Guild in Thyatira, you would make your way once a month into the city up to the temple of Apollo. There you would sacrifice an animal as an offering to be acceptable to Apollo, the son of God. And then you would take the flesh of that sacrificed animal once its blood was drained and you would eat the flesh together in your guild community along with your families as again, another offering and a gift from the son of God, Apollo. And then as the families went home, many of the adults would then recline at one of the guild leaders' homes in the center of that home, and they would recline on these couch beds known as tricliniums in the Roman Empire, and these couch beds, they would lay upon them, and they would drink wine, and they would have laughter and enjoy time together. And much as we saw last week with some of the symposiums, they would then get to the point of drunkenness where they would exchange sexual favors with one another, both with slaves, temple prostitutes to Apollo, as well as members of the guild. And this is how you would worship Apollo. If you did not participate in these guild feasts, you could not be in a guild. And if you were not in a guild, you could not work. And if you did not work, you could not eat. So important to understand what was going on in Thyatira in the first century. This small little community, be this minority of Christians. What do you do? What do you do if you're a Christian and you're in Thyatira on that day and you say, well, I need to work, but I don't serve Apollo. He's not the son of God. I serve Jesus Christ. He's the son of God who came and loved me and gave his life for me who conquered sin, Satan, and death for me and rose from the grave and has ascended on a high. I am loyal to Jesus as the son of God, not Apollo. And I can't eat that food because eating that food would be an act of worship unto Apollo. There's no other way that the rest of that community would interpret that act of eating that flesh as an act of worship to Apollo. I can't do that. And I'm certainly not gonna lay down on that couch bed. Because I believe what the scriptures have taught me, that the marriage bed is sacred, Hebrews tells us. That it's to be honored by all Christians. That we are to have fidelity in the covenant of marriage between one man and one wife. And that is the union that God has established for blessing. There will be no blessing outside of the marriage bed on these other couch beds. 
no matter how much upward mobility that may give me in this trade. So what do I do? Do you keep, do you compromise and keep your job? Or do you stay faithful to the Lord and stay faithful to his word and risk not only losing upward mobility in this job, but risk losing your very job itself and your livelihood for your family that you've been called to steward and maybe even have to get up and head somewhere else. What, what do you do if there has ever been a tension between being in the world and not being of the world? It is the church in Thyatira. This is the middle of all letters. This is the smallest of all the churches. And yet this is the longest of all the letters. And as is the pattern in every one of these letters, we will be introduced in the very first verse to who Jesus is to this community. Listen to the words of Christ starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, Jesus, right out of the gate, uses the title Son of God. That's no accident. This is the only time in the entire book of Revelation where the phrase Son of God is used. There is no question this is a punk down to Apollo. And all the Christians who would be tempted to worship Apollo as the son of God. And Jesus emphatically says, I am the son of God. And he is heated and he is readied for judgment. His eyes are all seeing. His feet are readied to tread. Bronze feet would have no doubt spoken to the bronzesmiths guild that were there in Thyatira. But this is an all-consuming wrath of Jesus that has been kindled. What is it that sets Jesus to this place of judgment? We'll see that in just a moment, but I want you to notice first, right out of the gate, just as we've seen with some of the other churches, there are some good things happening with the church in Thyatira. And Jesus commends them. Four commendations you're gonna see in verses 19. When Jesus says, I know your works, and here's what they are. Your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Four kinds of works that this church is commended for. Notice first is they're commended for their love. Now, it's interesting here, their love isn't connected to Jesus, like we had seen talked about in the church at Ephesus. The love that's described here is connected to their deeds. It's connected to their works. This is most certainly a church that is seeking to love people in their actions, that loves them well in terms of compassion for others. They are kind. They are others-centered. They care deeply about the humanity of the people that are around them. It's a good thing. And also, they're commended for their faith. They have great trust that everything that they've committed themselves to is worthwhile and that their God will supply what they need to serve what he's called them to serve. Their faith is commended in Jesus. 
Third, their service is commended, which is what their faith is fueling right here. They loved serving the needs of others, the needs of probably those in their church, the needs of those in the community. They've got a high social justice bar. They've got a high community service bar. If there is a need that is out there that's not being met, this church is quick to go meet that need. It is a resourceful church. It is a serving church. And then lastly, they're commended for their patient endurance or otherwise translated as perseverance. That even though they're weary, they never quit. They have held fast to the mission of seeking to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world around them. And Jesus says, not only are they doing these four things really well, they're progressing in them. They're better today than they were when they started as a church at these areas. This is an amazing church. In many ways, this looks like every other millennial and Gen Z church plant that's out there right now. Externally focused, want, want to be an authentic church, don't want to just say things with our mouth that aren't em- embraced in our lives. We want to go meet needs. We want to go focus on justice. We want to make sure we have love and compassion for the least of those around us. This is a beautiful thing. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like this? We'd say yes and amen to this. But when you think about the correlation to Ephesus that we looked at three weeks ago, what is it that's missing in this church that Ephesus had? There's no mention of their commitment to doctrinal truth or biblical discernment. None. No mention of their courage not to compromise. Just love and good deeds. Let's just go love everybody. Let's go serve needs. Let's just, let's just be a church version of the United Way and let's get out there and let's just be great, compassionate humanitarians to everybody around us And thus Jesus says, even though you're excelling in those things, there's something you're lacking. And we see this in verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This is a church that prides themselves in their tolerance. Now, we're going to see more of this next week. The epitome of tolerance is going to be Sardis that we'll see next week. But it just so happens that as they pride themselves in tolerance, it happens to be in areas that Jesus himself doesn't tolerate. Now, the question here is, who is Jezebel? that he would reference this. Well, we know who Jezebel is from our Old Testament, from 1 and 2 Kings. Jezebel was a Phoenician woman who married Ahab and became his wife in the days of Elijah. And Jezebel, marrying, intermarrying into the Jewish faith, she ends up leading God's people astray into the false worship of Baal, She tried to convince God's people that they could have both God and immorality, much like we saw last week with the Nicolaitans. She is always characterized as a false prophetess. And she, interestingly enough, is the one that Ephesus would not let in their doors. But Thyatira? Oh, they're just going to roll out the red carpet. And remember the tension that the church had. Wanting and needing to work, but not wanting to compromise, not wanting to sell out. 
And so along comes a false teaching like the spirit of Jezebel that would simply say, no, you can have both. And again, it would go like this. Listen, I'm a prophetess of God. He sent me here to tell you that it's okay. He understands that you have to do what you have to do to put food on the table. He knows how expensive it is to live here. And if you don't get the promotions that you need, you're not going to be able to take care of your own. God understands that. And he wants you to be happy and he wants you to work. So listen, understand, times have changed since the outdated and primitive teachings of the early church fathers. The church has evolved so much more. We are way more progressive and diverse and loving than those Bible thumpers down there in Ephesus. So feel free. Serve Jesus and honor Apollo. It's no big deal. Experiment sexually. It's no big deal. Because you can identify with whatever you want around here in Thyatira and nobody's going to judge you. That's the kind of loving place that the church is meant to be. Does that sound remotely familiar? And that's not just the world saying that, y'all. That's coming from the Bible Belt right here in Dallas. Not just the Bible, the buckle of the Bible Belt right here in Dallas. This kind of teaching that the church was embracing, Jesus is going to call it in verse 24, the deep things of Satan. Because it's not loving. It's not being open-minded. It's not being progressive. It's demonic. It's joining ourselves with that which God has not sanctified. And Jesus refused He refuses to allow his church, whom he purchased by his own blood, his righteousness that came with the price of his own life to then turn around and let his church start to call something holy that Jesus died for that was sin. Now, the good news in verse 21 is God is merciful. He is so merciful with our rebellion. He's so merciful with our idolatry. He's so merciful with our sin. And in verse 21, he gives these false teachers even and the church time to repent. But the problem is, is that she would not repent. And where there is no repentance, where there is no forsaking the idols of the world and turning back to the path of Jesus Christ and following him, no matter what it may cost us, where there is no repentance, Jesus now gives three consequences to this church, starting in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Three consequences are issued to the church that will not repent of compromise in the workplace. The first is that of sickness, he says in verse 22. This is incredible unhealth and bodily shutdown. Now, is this talking about a physical sickness or a spiritual sickness? That's debated. Regardless, the consequence here is fitting. She who profaned the marriage bed, 
This church who profane the marriage bed will now themselves be pinned onto a bed of sickness. It's the same thing, by the way, that God did with Jezebel in 2 Kings chapter 9. For her false teaching and her idolatry, he threw her down on a bed of sickness that ultimately led to her death. Now, some, again, have debated over, maybe it goes another way, maybe it's physical, maybe it's spiritual. Regardless, the point is clear. If you will not repent as a church, you can expect a physical autoimmune shutdown to your church body. One of the hallmarks of a sick church is one who begins to compromise with unrepentance in small little areas over time. That's a check engine light that something is not right in this church. And as long as that continues, it will lead to the second consequence of great tribulation in verse 22, a painful, long-suffering of the church. There is an affliction that sickness can't even touch that's coming your way, that's going to war against your church. And ultimately, all that unhealth will lead to, in verse 23, death. It says her children will die. Now, again, what is this referring to? Well, this is the idea of her followers, the church's disciples, all those who are born of her teaching and her immorality. And again, this is the same thing that God did with Ahab and Jezebel's 70 sons in 1 Kings 21, which it says, God utterly swept them all away because they had sold themselves out to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, do you notice how severe this is in a church? This time, it's not, I'm just going to remove your lampstand like you did with Ephesus. It's not even, I'm just going to make war at your church like you did in Pergamum. This time, I am going to physically take your church out. Your church is going to have a shelf life, and it's done. Because sickness that isn't repented of, that doesn't ultimately get the healing it needs, will culminate in death, and it is lifeline shutdown. And in many ways, This is what Jesus, this is a shot across the bow to the church of what's going to happen to a church that will not repent of compromise, specifically in the areas that we're looking at, which is here, the idea of our vocation, which this is one of the few messages where I just get to speak right now to the 99.9% that don't work at a church right now. All of us, this applies to everyone. And this may not even just be In the area of your work profession, this could be the school that you're a part of. It could be a a club or an organization that you're in. It can be some sort of sports team or nonprofit or a board you're on or a homeschool, whatever it is, stay-at-home mom. This can be any of these areas where there is continual compromise that will play itself out. Now, what Jesus is going to be clear to do is talk about the church here. He's going to turn the corner to the church that will hold fast that will not compromise, but you have to understand if you're willing to hold fast, it will cost you in another way. It's going to cost you in the eyes of the world. And lest you think this isn't real time for us in America right now, it was just not that long ago, 2016, that the senior fire chief for Atlanta, Georgia, over the whole city of Atlanta, who was a great leader, a commendable man, He was a godly Christ follower. And years earlier, he had written a book on manhood. And in that, he has a chapter on marriage. And he has a couple of lines in the entire book that affirm 
the sacredness of biblical marriage between one man and one woman in the covenant and the forsaking of all other alternative forms of sexuality outside of the marriage union, including homosexuality. That book that was written earlier, somebody found it, somebody read it, and that senior fire chief who had served that city so well was fired simply for holding to the word of God. It wasn't doing it on the workplace, wasn't trying to import uh, stewardship, proselytize. He was just associated, and he was removed. Just three weeks ago, some of y'all heard probably the story of... Andrew Thorburn, who was appointed as the CEO of one of Australia's prominent rugby teams, who also happened to be an elder at his church, City on a Hill, an Acts 29 church, under Guy Mason, his pastor. He was hired for this job. He was qualified for it. He had all the skills needed. There's no doubt he was going to lead that team well. And somebody found out he attended a conservative church that held to a biblical view of marriage. And 30 hours after he was hired, he was forced to resign. So this isn't just ethereal. For some people, it costs them everything. So what do you do when you're in this position as a Christ follower when compromise is the only way for you to keep in your job or even to move upward and you're unwilling to do it in the name of Jesus Christ? For that church who's growing weary in those circumstances, like we see in first century Thyatira, Jesus writes to them with some encouragement. You see this in verse 24 and following. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay, lay on you any other burden other than this, verse 25, only to hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, you're going to have to hold fast. That word means to take a firm grip of God's truth as he clearly lays out in his word without compromising all the way to the end until he returns. And that may indeed cost you some things in this life. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your promotion. It may cost you the culture and community of the people that you serve around. It may cost you to move if necessary. In fact, some people feel this is exactly why Lydia is found in Philippi and not in Thyatira in Acts 16. That maybe, just maybe, Lydia, who we know, she wasn't a Christian at this point. Paul's going to meet her and he'll lead her to Jesus. But she was what was known as a God-fearer. She worshipped the God of the Jews, Yahweh. And we trust that at some point she came to that faith there in Thyatira. And if she is in a guild in Thyatira, it's not too far of a stretch to go at some point. Faith in Yahweh is going to conflict with faith in Apollo. And maybe, just maybe, that's why she's relocated to Philippi, selling her fabrics there in that time. Either way, Jesus commends this church, and he promises them in verses 26 and 27, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father to the one who will not compromise and who continues to hold fast to Christ's truth, even if it costs them their job. Jesus quotes Psalm 2 right here. This is the psalm that is given. Jesus gives it here as our reward for faithfulness to him. It's the promise in Psalm 2 of Christ's sovereign rule that is given to him by the Father that will be fully consummated at his second coming when all authorities and all principalities are put under his feet as a footstool and he rules and he sovereignly reigns. And Jesus says to all my children, All my followers who will not bend the knee of compromise in the ways of the world, in the marketplace, in the arenas that you're in, there is a day coming when I will graft you into my reign. And all those who oppressed you and ruled over you and kicked you out of their guilds, you will reign over all of them in me. And Jesus says, essentially here, you who've lost everything, to follow me. In the end, I will give you everything, including and maybe most precious, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Now, the morning star has several meanings within the scriptures, but in terms of this context here, this is a clear reference to Jesus's everlasting presence that is promised to you and I. Numbers 24, 2 Peter 1, Revelation 22, all refer to Christ as the morning star. It is his presence that is the dawning of new light. It is the dawning of a new day. And such it will be for those of us who feel like we've lost everything in this life to follow Jesus. His presence upon his return will make all things new for you. So church, hold fast. And he concludes, he who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So church, what do we do with this text? Is this just a first century issue or does this correlate into our context? I think it correlates really well. And I think as we've done at the end of each of these letters, we want to continue in a posture of introspection. Maybe some questions we can pose for ourselves to consider and to reflect on and if needed, repent of over the next six days as we head towards the next church we'll look at next week. But one of the questions that I would put before us is maybe spend some time thinking about the particular areas that you're in. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it directly correlates to your workplace. I don't know where you work, but you work maybe somewhere and there are going to be temptations and compromises that are going to be for you at your work. Maybe it's not a job. Maybe it's the school you're in right now. Maybe you're a student and it's just part of the educational circles that you're in right now. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you are on a sports team right now or you're part of a club or an organization or you're helping with a nonprofit, whatever it may be. What areas of compromise are you being tempted in in that arena right now? Specifically, when it comes to areas that might actually cause you to have to deny parts of your faith and truths of scripture so that you maybe can fit in the, or, or move up the proverbial ladder. Now, listen, most likely being a Christian in Dallas, Texas, let's just be real right now, 
it's not going to try to over, it's not going to cost you for most of us your job or your livelihood just for being a Christian, at least not yet. Most of our costs are going to be in the small day-to-day temptations of compromise. Maybe in areas of people-pleasing, maybe wanting to fit in with the culture that you're a part of there. Maybe you don't want to risk potential loss of promotions or upward mobilities or raises. Maybe it's the temptation to take shortcuts so that you can meet a different bottom line that will make you look good in the eyes of your peers. Maybe it's moral and sexual compromise that is around you. The temptations to want to keep silent about your faith in Jesus or to give in in some small area of compromise so that you don't risk loss socially, civically, or vocationally. Those are probably our greatest dangers right now. But understand, it is the constant surrender in those little temptations that is training your muscles for an all-out denial of the faith in a future day. Faithfulness is cultivated over the long haul in the small moments of decision and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And when you are constantly bending the knee in those small areas, it is just a matter of time before Satan presents to you a greater opportunity of compromise that will be easier to say yes to in that day. And again, this is real time. I've got a buddy that's out in California, flew in, um, not too long ago and was here with a company of his and a couple of the higher-ups were with him and he was just starting out in the company, had a great opportunity for a lot of upward mobility. And as they come here, um, they finish their meetings for the day and then kind of the head boss looks at them and goes, okay, biggest question we got to deal with tonight is which strip club are we going to? And in that moment was this temptation. His instant thing was, of course, I'm not going to go to that, but he'd be the only one. And as he began to try to back out of it, he felt the immediate pressure from those folks kind of going, oh, this is how it's going to be, huh? Oh, you're kind of that, you're that Christian, huh? And there was never an explicit threat that you could file with HR, but there was a cultural moment there of if you don't go along with us, then I think we're going to find somebody else on the future trips and for future considerations. You can continue a low-ranking position in there and all that. That's a real temptation, real compromise. Now, I'll say this, in addition to the small compromises, I do think there's a real-time one that is on us right now in the West. And that is, especially in the workplaces or in civic social clubs, if you aspire to have a high level of influence, you want to be a CEO at a company like Disney, at a company like Amazon, Google or Starbucks, you mention that you're a Christ follower, you mention that you're a faithful member of Northway Church, do you believe what that pastor taught out of that text? You're canceled. You want to try to go get a doctorate program at Harvard right now and be bold in your faith and outspoken as a Christ follower? And they're going to find somebody else for that one. You want to try to go be an actor? and have lead roles in Hollywood, and be vocal about your faith, don't even get me into politics right now, all right? 
These are real-time influences, let alone a fire chief in Atlanta or a rugby owner in Australia. You go public as a Christ follower and you hold to a biblical ethic or worldview, you're going to have to decide real quick what is most important to you. And that's really the, the second question. Maybe the biggest question that we can ask is how much is Jesus worth to you? I have to ask that question myself. How much is Jesus worth to me? Jesus said, and Mark quotes this in Mark's gospel, chapter eight, Mark wrote to an entire Roman empire. And he quotes Jesus in Mark eight when he said, what shall profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? In the midst of a day when churches are being tempted to tolerate what is sin so that we don't lose credibility with the world, we must be one who holds fast to Christ in both love and truth. And Jesus promises us what it may cost you in this life pales in comparison to what you're going to gain for all of eternity and what you can possess right now in the fullness of joy that is found in Jesus Christ because Jesus is better. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, it's a sobering word, but like all of these letters, it's a needed word because everyone, including myself, in the arenas that we find ourselves in, whether vocationally, civically, socially, are going to meet these temptations if we haven't encountered them already. God, would you give us the grace to stand? You give us the grace to hold fast to your word, to not deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, to not simply drift towards neutrality in our faith where we kind of create this secular and sacred binary and we disconnect our faith from these other spheres that we're in. Oh God, may you find us faithful. And may we, not out of a sense of legalism and burden and have to, but simply by the sheer joy that has come from the unmerited grace that we have received in Christ Jesus that has secured us and sealed us for all eternity. May it be out of the abundance and overflow of what we have received in Christ that would make any sacrifice we would have to make pale in comparison. God, protect us. We, uh, we ask this, God, for your glory, for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.